Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Happy Father's Day. Glad that you're here to study God's Word with us. We're going to begin a, a three-week brief series called Wisdom in a Wayward World. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to uh, just pay attention. We've got people walking around. If you have your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to do three weeks of study from the book of Proverbs, but we want to encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't have one. We gladly give out Bibles here and read from the Bible and believe the Bible and hope that you will find the Bible to be extremely helpful. So I want to begin by reminding you that for years, people in Europe and America, we lived in a culture that was pretty much grounded in a basic belief that there was a God who created us. And as a result of that, we had some sense of a moral obligation to him and to the authority of his word. Now, that doesn't mean that most of Europe and America were born-again Christians. It just meant that there was a culture um, that, that shared values based on the fact that many people read the Bible. Donald Carson has a book called Christ and Culture Revisited, and he says culture is basically a set of values broadly shared by a set of human population. So for years, we lived in a culture rooted in what was called the Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, some people are deceived into thinking our, our, our country was founded by a bunch of Christians. It's not that they were all Christians. Many of our founding fathers weren't Christians, but they held to an ethic that the Bible was true, that the God of the Bible was real, and therefore it shaped their sense of morality and their sense of right and wrong. And for last couple hundred years, we just assumed that everybody held that same common moral worldview. A worldview is kind of like your set of beliefs your fundamental aspects of reality. Your worldview is kind of like answers to these questions, even if you haven't thought them cognitively. Why am I here? You know, how did I get here? What's my purpose? And then, and then what's going to happen in the future? But today, Donald Carson goes on to say, much of the Western world, despite the fact that Christianity shaped the West, Unfortunately, our culture, and we, we see this, it's moving away from Christianity, and in fact, not just moving away from it, but now it's becoming openly hostile to Christianity. Christian beliefs are no longer welcome in the public, public square. So here we are living in this time going, what, what am I supposed to do? How can I, as a child of God, live in a, in a world as a forgiven follower and go, what, what's going on in our culture? Why is there this sudden, shocking change in people's beliefs, in morality? Why is there a sexual revolution, a rise in violence, an increase of division and, 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 and hostility along political lines? Why is there a, a, a massive rise in mass killings? Why are we fighting over abortion? And why is there a rapid increase in divorce? Why are there so many unwed children? Why is there now a push 
to normalize homosexual behavior. And even at this point, the current trend to, to tell our children that they need to figure out what their real personhood is, even if it's not their biological gender. Like, some people would see this as progress. They'd go, wow, we're finally progressing. But others would ask, has the world gone mad? Like, like what's going on? And as a Christian, we can, we can sort of go, do I withdraw? Or some Christians choose to verbally attack, criticize, mock anything that, that they perceive to be idiotic, idiotic philosophies. So as we begin to look at Proverbs, we're going to learn that there's a way to navigate life in a difficult society. Raising questions like, how, how do I interact with this at work, in my home, as I raise and educate my children? It's complex, and it would be safe to say that a lot of people have lost their moorings because so many people are, are just going with the flow that it's kind of like, well, am I allowed to stand against that, and how do I do that? And in addition to that, with the internet, we're, we're inundated with, with something that um, Austin and I were talking about, he sent me an article, it's called an infodemic, an infodemic. All of this stuff coming at us so quickly, and one says this, another says that. If I watch this news, they tell me this. If I watch this, it's all fake news, and, and, and my mind starts to spin. But then I'm reminded that as a Christian, there is a channel. There, there is what the Bible calls a path, a narrow way. And so the book of Proverbs invites us into this lifestyle called wisdom. And so we're calling this brief series Wisdom in a Wayward World. So as we begin the book of Proverbs, I don't have time to spend background on what, what are Proverbs and, and what is wisdom literature at this point, but suffice it to say that God in, in the Bible has given us a, 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 an idea a pathway of how to live our lives. And this pathway is called wisdom, and, it, and it's not just a, a series of laws. Don't do this, do this, don't do that. But rather, it's broader than that. So this morning, we're going to begin the book by looking at the first chapter, and we're going to see three things. Number one, the offer and definition of wisdom. And that's in the first seven verses. And then we're going to look at the first example of wisdom, which ironically is going to be, hey, avoid dishonest gain. And then finally, we'll see the first of many invitations to learn to live with wisdom. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll read along and, and see what God offers to us. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will take your words now and that we will learn this different way, this way of wisdom that, that teaches us how to live in a world that seems so confused and disoriented. Thank you so much that you love us and you gave us the word of God so that we're not left to fend for ourselves. But Lord, help us to listen and be willing to change as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the offer and definition of wisdom. We know from scripture that 
King Solomon was given great wisdom by God. He prayed for it. He said, Lord, give me wisdom. And so God imparted to him a, 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 a downloading of great wisdom in his mind. And so through the Spirit, he was moved by God to record these. So these are inspired words from God. These aren't just opinions from a sharp businessman. So let's begin where in the first six verses we'll see not so much what is wisdom, but what does wisdom offer? So look at verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So what do Proverbs offer you? He says, well, to know wisdom and instruction. So uh, as you engage with Proverbs, you'll begin to know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. One might say that this reminds me a little bit of a, of a self-help book, right? In fact, I was thinking about how often people, when they're offering a self-help book, they'll, they'll end it with this phrase, for dummies, right? The iPhone for dummies or um, saving your money f for dummies or how to get better with computers for dummies. But here Solomon is offering not self-help, but God's help. And he uses phrases like wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity. You know, as you think about that, I doubt many people, if I, if I were to interview the employees at Barnes & Noble, would say, how many people are coming into your place and saying, where's your self-help section on, on wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity? That's probably not going to be one of the best sellers. So one of the things that we have to be convinced of is the value. Is there a benefit? Is there... Is there something that makes it worthwhile that I learn these things. So Solomon says, these Proverbs, verse 4, will give prudence to the naive. Uh, this word naive often means simple, right? Remember, we think of simple Simon, and, and we tend to think of a simple person as somebody who has a low IQ, when in fact, we're going to learn from Proverbs that being simple has nothing to do with your IQ. It is designed to give to the youth knowledge and discretion. Now, again, we almost, we almost kind of have to chuckle at that when we think of youth culture because one might argue that there aren't many youth beating the, the doors down going, how can I acquire discretion? Where can I find these pearls of wisdom? In fact, it's not just for beginners, but Solomon says, a man of understanding, or excuse me, a wise man will hear an increase in learning. So lest we tune this out and say, yeah, this is just some basic things for knucklehead kids, those lazy Gen Xers or millennials who don't even know that early to bed, early to rise. It's like, no, no, this is for everybody. And it's a constant opportunity to increase in this the skill. Then he says, to understand a proverb, the words of the wise and their riddles. 
like riddles require a moment or two to reflect. Like if someone says, what is greater than God, worse than sin? And if you eat it, you'll die. And you're like, hmm, that's a riddle. Greater than God, worse than sin. And if you eat it, you'll die. And in essence, that's a pretty easy solution. Just ask the first question, what's greater than God? Nothing. Okay, you just solve the riddle. Right? What's worse than sin? Nothing. And if you eat it, you'll die. Nothing. Oh, wow. So sometimes Proverbs require a little bit of reflection and the Holy Spirit guiding our hearts to think of its meaning. So at this point, Solomon hasn't defined wisdom. He simply told us that there's a, an offer to get wisdom from the book of Proverbs. But now let's talk about in this first section, in his introduction, the definition of wisdom. He says in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, I think the King James says is the beginning of wisdom. But then he, then he helps us to understand what wisdom is by, by contrasting it with this term of fool. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. One of the things that's, that's really interesting about the idea of a fool is that fools aren't stupid. Okay, so in our culture, like fool's gold, hey, I, I tricked a kid. Fools aren't stupid. In the Bible, fools are stubborn. So when it says fools despise wisdom, that, that's a strong word indicating that it's a resistance. It's not just like, that's too, too hard for me to understand. It's more of a sense like, I don't want your instructions. So as we think about well, what is wisdom, it, it's helpful to think of the opposite of wisdom, foolishness. Now, at first we're thinking, yeah, I, I know a couple fools that need to hear this. Well, you know one really well because you're living inside of him, right? <laughs> the book of Proverbs actually says this, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. That's just another way of saying we're born foolish. Now, I know that you think that you're the exception, which is another mark of being a fool. <laughs> really, Proverbs says a fool is wiser in his own eyes than seven other people who could give a good answer. So foolishness is, is, is very deceitful because we don't recognize that we still have it flowing in our bones. So foolishness, Proverbs says, is bound in the heart of a child. And the essence of what foolishness is, is I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And especially God. And you're like, well, give me an example. Well, have you ever told a child, don't touch that? Not that there was any intrinsic value in touching that. Just the fact that you told them, don't touch that, began to, to bring out that foolishness within them. In fact, the Bible uses another term to describe this foolishness. It's called the flesh, and it's a stubborn disposition. In fact, in Romans 8, it says this, 
the mindset on the flesh is death. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's, it's not even able to do so. And therefore, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, so basically, what we learn is we're born with an inclination to not want to submit to God or authority over us. That was because of Adam's original sin. We're infected with it. You don't even have to get a nostril test. I'm telling you, you have it. We're born with it. Not stupid, but stubborn. Now, some people's stubbornness becomes hardened and runs so deep that not only are they unwilling to submit to God, but they deny His very existence. So, for example, in Psalm 14, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that, that's a level of foolishness beyond just like, I don't want to listen to God. And, and that type of foolishness is a philosophy of life, a worldview. Even someone as famous as Richard Dawkins, whom the world bows down to as this, you know, PhD scholar who will show us the way, he says, we can't even allow God a foothold in the door. So this deliberate, foolish denial of God. And what fools don't realize is they don't have the capacity to reason correctly about life. Their, their framework is distorted. God has given us a creation in which, if you just look around, it says the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by His creation, so they're without excuse. God has made it evident within us, and He's made His power known to us through creation. But the interesting thing is that fools can even be religious. So you could be a fool and go to church as long as that church isn't preaching from the Bible and telling you this is what God says and this is what God wants. Thankfully, God's patience. While a fool says, don't correct me, don't have an authoritative God invite me to a changed life, God in His grace gives us the Bible and He says, let me offer to you wisdom. And, and, and here's how He defines it. He defines it with a starting point. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to take a moment and talk about the word wisdom. The, the Hebrew word wisdom is chokmah. And Bruce Waltke, who's a, a renowned scholar of, of the Old Testament, says that chokmah is a skill of choosing the right course or action. So, so it's, not, it's not the same as knowledge, right? You can, you can know a lot of stuff, but that's not wisdom because wisdom is a step further. It's a skill. And biblical wisdom then is a skill in godly living or basically the... the the definition I want us to work with over the next couple weeks is skillfully living God's way in God's world. All right, let's say that together. Skillfully living God's way in God's world. How do I navigate this? Well, well, he tells us that there's a starting point. He says the starting point is the fear of the Lord. And, and, and what he doesn't mean by this is a, as a slavish terror 
from God, but it's rather a, a respect for God's authority. It's a willingness to turn and orient my life around God and say, I believe that God is real, that he created me. I believe that he sent his son Jesus Christ to forgive me. And so I'm willing to listen to him so that I can learn how to live this, this life in his world. It's based on a continual learning and practicing of what he reveals to us in the word. And so hopefully you're on point and going, okay, all right, I hear you. What do you got for me, Solomon? Throw, throw me one out. Now, it's really interesting that the first example of skillful wisdom, learning to live God's way, is to avoid dishonest gain. Interesting. Look at verse 8 and 9. So we've seen the offer of the definition. Now let's talk about this first example of, of skillful wisdom. He says, hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, there are graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. So, new thing to note, in the book of Proverbs, from now on, we're going to have this continual appeal of a father to a son. Now, there's a couple layers to this. First of all, it's Solomon, right? Solomon is speaking to his own sons. In fact, in chapter 4, Solomon says, when I was a kid, my dad, David, he sat me down and he said, dad, or he said, son, the most important thing in life is that you get wisdom. And then he went on to tell him, here's why, here's how valuable it is. It's better than gold. Nothing compares to it. So son, get wisdom. So, so Solomon then takes that framework and he's going to use that as he imparts wisdom to us. But there's a couple things I want you to think about here. Number one, many of us, both as fathers and receiving from fathers, did not get a whole lot of this, right? In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've had young people share with me, even pastor sons, like, yeah, I could, I never really, my dad never really talked about this. We never, we never felt comfortable going there. And so today on Father's Day is not the day to, to play the blame game. You know, my dad didn't teach me this or whatever. But it's also an opportunity to think, even if you are a father, you could look back and, 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 and don't sit and beat yourself at what a failure, but maybe learn some things about how I could be a better father imparting wisdom, which isn't just lecturing my kid. But even more important here, I want you to think in the, in the grander scheme, as a child of God, this is how God relates to his children. This is how he wants us to envision us in a father-son relationship, which while, while some of us may not have had a healthy one, we know what a healthy one looks like. Some of us spent, I spent a lot of my younger years looking for a father figure because my father, who was 52 when I was born, pretty much disconnected emotionally. And I don't hold any resentment to him. I'm sure that's how he was raised. And, and getting married to a 30-year-old when he's 50, he basically said, if you want to have kids, you raise them. And, and that was kind of his motto. So he wasn't a bad man. He was just 
disconnected. And so I found myself as a young man wanting a father figure, somebody to correct me, somebody to give me advice. I remember my best friend who, who, who went to seminary with me, he said, I remember a, a telling time in my life when I was a young teenager and I, I had questions about girls at, and my dad was reading the, the paper and I sat with him, I think it was a Sunday afternoon after church, and he says, Dad, and he begins to pour out his heart and, and share his fears and ask his dad for his advice. And he says, when I got all done, my dad put down the paper and he went, huh? And then he went back to reading the paper and he said, and I knew at that time that just wasn't going to happen. But here's God, the Bible says, as a father loves his children. So, so the Lord sees us and, and corrects us and advises us. So throughout the book, if you're a Christian, receive these things as God the Father sitting down with you and saying, hear my child. And it's not always going to be all happy encouragement. It's not all going to be K-love, positive encouragement. It might have to be correction. It might have to be instruction. But even there, the Bible says, don't despise the correction and instruction of the Lord. So framed within that, he says, there's a value. Look at verse 9. He says, if you listen, it will be a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament about your neck. Now, sometimes we have to have culture to understand that. Here, this wreath was, was a victor's wreath, and the garland was like a beautiful pendant, a chain around your neck as a mark of prestige. It's kind of like saying, if you listen, this is like having an Olympic gold medal. You will be held in honor, and you will be seen by others as, as a person who has been blessed and contributes to society. And as a Christian, we want that. The Bible says in Colossians 4, we should walk with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of our opportunities to speak to them. So, as he frames it in this fatherly network, he now is going to give us an example of wisdom. Look at verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If sinners entice you, do not consent. I just, just saw a new book that, that came out. It's, it was a very funny title. It's a marriage book. It looks very well written. I want to read it. It's called, Are You Married to a Sinner? I was like, hmm, that's, that's a clever, clever question. What does the Bible mean when it talks about sinners? In fact, did it ever strike you that when you're reading the Bible, sometimes someone will walk along and they'll go, that guy's a sinner. Jesus, that woman's a sinner. Well, one of the things we need to understand is sinners come in different flavors. There's religious sinners, and in our culture, we don't tend to think of them as sinners. We, we tend to look at them more as like, these are good people. And then there's irreligious sinners, the, the ones that just throw it all off and go, I don't care about God, and I don't care about right and wrong, I don't care about anything but what I want. And so we tend to categorize them in a different sense. And probably here Solomon is thinking more of these type of people. But the reality is, even within this church, there will be sinners who will entice you. Mark that down. Second Peter chapter 3 says, be careful. And he's talking about in church, lest being led away by the, the conduct of, of unprincipled people 
you can fall from your own steadfastness. Affairs happen in churches. Schemes and lies and gossip, all kinds of things happen in churches. People get drunk. For, and, and as a professor at Cairn, I remember a student once saying, I never smoked pot until I came to Cairn. Now, it's not as though we have a seminar and we offer free cannabis for eye problems. But sinners will entice you, and we all have to come to grips with that, that there will be times that people will invite us to a course of behavior that's a dead end. And sometimes we don't even need a human being to do it. We also have the devil. He's called the tempter. And even if he's not in the room, the Bible says we can be drawn away by our own flesh and tempted. So, Nally gives forth an example that at first seems unusual. In fact, I might say it this way. He's saying, don't join a gang, right? So, if, if you're considering, you know, signing on with the Crips or the Blood, or if you're considering going to, to Mexico and joining a cartel, don't do it. And we sort of go, wow, that's pretty out of touch. But yet, if you go down to verse 19, he says, so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. So let, let's briefly read these and then talk about maybe some of the applications. Verse 11, if, if your friends say to you, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. In other words, hey, let's just go rob people, right? I mean, at the end of the day, this isn't something that doesn't happen in our culture, right? If, if, if I was doing, I was thinking about this, if I was doing a devotion in a prison, like this would be straight up, they'd be like, wow, that's, half of us are here because we didn't listen to this. But it's more subtle than that. Because it's not just robbing people. But let's start with that. He says, verse 13, we'll find all kinds of precious wealth. We'll fill our houses with spoil. So, hey, throw in your lot with us. Join us. We'll, we'll have one purse. We all, we all will share that together. And how many cowboy movies have the, have the outlaws all promised that they were going to split it right down the middle? But it didn't end that way, did it? My son, don't walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they, and they hasten to shed blood. And that's true. There are, there are more and more Americans. Like, like, like we sit and we go, what is going on in our culture? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much crime? There's nothing new under the sun. One of the reasons why it's more prevalent today is because philosophically, we don't punish it as severely. I mean, it's just a biblical principle that severe punishment for crime is a great deterrent of crime. However, Solomon uses an analogy. He goes, here's why it's a dumb idea to do that. It's useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. Back then, they, they used to trap birds, you know, to eat. He goes, it's kind of dumb right in front of the bird to go, you know, throw out a net and throw some birds. See, birds, birds are bird brains, but they still have a brain. They're not like <laughs> that stupid. He says, what they don't realize is they lie and wait for their own blood 
they ambush their own lives. And so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Now, clearly here he's, he's kind of implying that, that old adage, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. One translation says in verse 9, such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. So, in a, in a sense, a couple takeaways from, from this particular verse are, yeah, I mean, duh, if someone says, hey, you want to go mug some people tonight? We probably shouldn't do that because, first of all, I might get shot, right? Yeah, but is that it? Well, let's, let's dig a little deeper here because this desire for, for gain, right? Why would somebody be stupid enough to do this? Well, it's a broader wisdom principle. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And when people long for it, they plunge themselves into many harmful temptations that lead to ruin and destruction. So while we might not be tempted to go and mug someone, are we tempted to cook the books a little bit or be deceitful on our taxes or be deceitful in our, in our dealings in business or be selfish when that will is read and sort of live in a way that is contrary to the principles of love for your neighbor. So one commentary said it this way. He said, along the way we'll meet self-centered narcissistic people like this who say, hey, join me. Bullies at school ganging up on another kid, tormenting him to the point of despair. So hey, sinners entice you, don't join in. Computer hackers stealing people's money. Wall Street insiders exploiting for their own gain. Political good old boys forgetting their constituents and taking care of each other. Islamic terrorists plotting, plotting and murdering people to create an ideal Muslim world. Racists treating others as non-persons who don't count. Political candidates defrauding and not serving. Neighbors who want bad things to be true of someone else in order to justify their gossiping. Office politics talking about the boss and factions splitting churches. This, this whole divisiveness and, and, and desire for gain at the expense of others. Solomon's warning us, hey, that's a bad way to, to, to pursue. So let's close now because Solomon now offers us an invitation to wisdom. So, so he's, he's defined it. He's giving an example of it. And now there's this invitation. And, and, and he does something really fun. He uses personification, a street preacher. Now, I have mixed emotions about street preachers. I think that they have a place and they're valuable. And, and yet, sometimes I'm not sure that they're the best evangelistic method, depending on the context. I mean, we all understand. Remember from um, Jesus Freak, there was a man with a tat on his big fat belly wiggled around like marmalade jelly. Took me a while to get what he said because I couldn't match the rhythm of his belly with my head. Jesus saves is what he said. And, and, and we go on and we go, yeah. 
He's a Jesus freak, and I'm a Jesus freak, and I got saved through a street preacher. But the reality is about one in a thousand people probably get saved through a street preacher. Anybody here get saved through a street preacher? But I can tell you this, 80% of people get saved through a friend or family member. Anybody here get saved through a friend or family member? Thank you. Exactly. So, but what, what, what Solomon does is he personifies wisdom as a street preacher. And not only a street preacher, but a lady street preacher. And so, this imagery is quite graphic. And, and later in the book, she's going to be a, a, a lady inviting us to a banquet. And he's going to contrast foolishness as another lady saying, don't eat over there, eat over here. But let's look at this, this offer because it's really profound. And I find it both encouraging and convicting. He says in verse 20, wisdom, so now he's going to personify wisdom, shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. You know, in those cultures, they would have the marketplace and everybody so busy gathering and bustling and hustling. You know, you, you could see this maybe in the streets of New York City. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Well, what is she preaching? What's her message? Well, look at verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love simplicity? How long, scoffers, will you delight yourself in scoffing? And how long, fools, will you hate knowledge? Now, perhaps one might say, if it was a, a churchgoer, I might say it this way. How many sermons are you going to listen to until you turn, right? But it also might be to the most rebellious kid who doesn't want to, want to hear anything. How long until you're going to turn? Now, you'll notice that he, he, he mentions these different people, the scoffers and the fools and the simple ones. A scoffer is an aggressive person. He's confident and, and he, he's, he's, he's just in your face. The, these, are the, these are the worst kind at times to have a conversation with. The Bible says, um, there's actually a funny t-shirt. It says, haters will hate Proverbs 9.8. Because Proverbs 9.8 says, rebuke a fool or a scoffer and he will hate you, Right? But then he talks about fools here. He says, how long of fools? And the fool is, is he's the stubborn one. He doesn't listen. He knows better. Some of you are going, yeah, that reminds me of my kid. And if you just went back a little further, you ought to go, yeah, that reminds me a little bit of me, right? Nothing's ever the, scoff, the, 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 the fool's fault. But the simple one, as one commentary said, this guy's not yet committed. They don't really know what they're living for but they go with the flow and they conform. They have a better chance to respond, but yet they don't live with urgency. So he begins this invitation, how long are you gonna just continue in this pathway? And then he uses a strong term, turn to my reproof. Turn, change, be willing to stop the insanity 
of expecting different results without a willingness to change your ways. And so what, God, what might God be saying to us today as he tells us, turn to my reproof? You know, I thought a lot about this because this has a lot of applications. For some of you, it's you need to turn to Christ and become a forgiven follower. In fact, one of the questions I had as I was reading Proverbs is, how does Proverbs relate to Jesus? How does Proverbs relate to the gospel? Should I simply read Proverbs as this disconnected book of short sayings that'll help me to live skillfully. And so there was a lot of helpful stuff uh, online. One of them by, some of you have heard of Ted Tripp, and I would recommend to you, Ted Tripp has a whole series of little five-minute vignettes on Proverbs, but one of them I want to read briefly from. He said, every proverb leads to Jesus. He said, sin reduces us all to fools, and we're born with this foolish God denial and live as if God didn't exist. I put myself in the center, and life is all about me. But Proverbs shows that there is hope for fools, but that hope is an intervention of divine grace. It's not clean up your life. It's rather this invitation that the perfect wise one, Jesus, lived a perfect life, offered a perfect acceptable death to God, and therefore, I love this, he says, all the Proverbs are one big figure pointing to Jesus. They're a cry for rescue and redemption. They're a cry for Jesus. So as you read this, turn to my reproof. This is Jesus ultimately saying, come to me, turn to me, be willing to, to follow me, accept my forgiveness. And then look what he offers. He says, if you do that, he says, if you will turn to my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will pour out my spirit on you. And of course, what, what we know that is, is the very work of regeneration in our hearts where God changes us, where God gives us a new orientation, a new life, a new hard drive, new desires, a new disposition, a new creature in Christ, a divine enablement. God says, I know you're weak and I know you're stubborn, but if you'll turn to me and just be willing, then I will pour out on you forgiveness and enablement. The batteries, as one commentary said, are included. Jesus knows all that we need, and he died to take away our guilt, and he has the power to change us. But then let's close with this thought. The halls of hell are filled with people who heard these things and for various reasons just said, nah, not interested, or maybe another time. So, so this passage is a very sobering warning. Look at verse 24. So God is offering week after week, day after day, come to Jesus, follow Jesus. For those who don't, he says, because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel. You didn't want my reproof. Now, this is hard to imagine. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock 
when your dread comes. Now, at first read, that sounds kind of mean, like God's gone, oh, so you didn't listen to me? Ha, 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 look what's happening to you. No, I, I don't think that's the point here. I think God's justice is simply being satisfied. And there comes a point where God says, your calamity will come like a whirlwind and distress and anguish come on you. Verse 28 says, then they will call on me, but I won't answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean a person hits rock bottom and they're like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I turned to you and I want to follow you. And he goes, nope, you had your chance. Certainly what we understand of the gospel offer is this, this can't be a point where Jesus says, hey, listen, I know you want to come to me now, but it's too late. Because Jesus said this, all who come to me, I won't cast them out. So I'm going to assume that this too lateness is once they left the world. While you still have breath, it's not too late. Thief on the cross, classic example. Lord, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But notice, God ends with this wonderful consolation. He says, so you'll eat the fruit of your own way, be satiated with your own devices, because the, the waywardness of the naive will kill them. The complacency of fools shall destroy them. But then look at this beautiful closing thought. But he who listens to me. And this isn't just talking about coming for conversion. I hope you've done that. But once you've come to Jesus and trusted him and turned to him, it's then an ongoing willingness to follow, a willingness to say, Lord, I need you to teach me. I need you to guide me. Life is complex. It's a wayward world, and I don't always know the right path. But God says this, I assure you that if you listen to me, you shall dwell securely. What a wonderful thought. In the midst of all this fear, anxiety, confusion, disorder, God says, if you'll just turn and trust Jesus and listen to me, you will be at ease from the dread of evil. So what do I do with this? How do I, how do I as a Christian take this to heart? Well, I think there's an urgency here. I think there's an urgency that says all of us, all of us need to reorient ourselves to a very clear willingness to trust and follow Jesus. I want you to read next week because then he's going to urge us to seek wisdom. It's not just I'll download my, my one-minute podcast before I watch my three hours of sitcoms, but rather he's going to say, if you cry out for wisdom, God will give it to you. But here we as Christians are, are, are put in a place of going, Lord, what's it going to look like for us to navigate our culture right now? And God's going, it's wisdom. It's following me. It's listening to me. It's turning when I speak to your heart and say, this isn't the way. This is the way. Will you continue in your foolishness? Will you scoff? 
Will you stay simple on the fence? Or will we turn and surrender and say, Lord, show us how to live. The book of Ephesians says, don't be foolish. It says, but walk as wise men, learning how to please the Lord. Can you see Jesus today in all of his love saying, I've already forgiven you. I've redeemed you. You're my child. Now I'm asking you to take my yoke and turn and follow me, and I'll pour out blessing on you, and you will be at ease from the dread of evil in the midst of a very chaotic world. Amen? Father, as we close in prayer, may the Holy Spirit take the Word of God and point us to Jesus. As Ted Tripp said, Proverbs are a giant finger pointing us to Jesus. For some of you, I urge you today to answer that question, how long will you put Jesus off? How long will you refuse to listen? Today, I ask and invite you to say, yes, Jesus, I do believe you died for me. I do want to be forgiven, and I am willing to turn Pour out upon me the strength to do so. For those of you who've made that decision, continue in that pathway. There are so many people that need wisdom, and you can be that conduit. You can be that disciple maker. Continue to teach your children the Bible. Father, it says in Scripture that from childhood, the Holy Scriptures make us wise to salvation through faith in Christ. Grow us as a thinking church as we face many difficult cultural issues. Help us to walk in peace and in the pathway of wisdom. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Be sure to say hi to someone around you. Fellowship with the saints. Meet somebody new. Ask them how you can pray for them. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week.